Всем добрый вечер. Good evening, afternoon, or good morning, wherever you're tuning in from. Welcome to Tochni. Tochni is a podcast on Spotify, which goes out live as a Twitter space. And you can also find us on Apple Podcasts. Please check out our main account for links to these. We also broadcast an interview series called Tochni Talks, which has had amongst its most recent interviewees Exit 266, André Sifra, Sergei Sumleni, Dr. Mauro Gili, and Michael Weiss. Please follow the main account for updates about forthcoming interviews, and if you're listening on Spotify, this is where the items which we post in our nest on Twitter can be found. If you're listening live, please, whatever you do, don't just retweet the space. If you're from my small part of the world, we've just had local elections in the UK, so I will respectfully request that you retweet along with an email to your new or retained local representatives and ask them what they're doing for Ukraine, what they're doing for Ukrainian refugees in your town or city, what solidarity events are upcoming, to keep that conversation with those who have been anointed as the levers of power in your communities, to keep that conversation about Ukraine and what it needs to liberate its occupied territories and people and win this war, to keep that conversation going. So, we've got an enticing program today, as we again get behind the stories on Ukraine's fight for its survival and liberation. It gives me great pleasure to say that this week we are joined by filmmaker Adrian Purview, who has been making films in Ukraine, including 2022, of which we'll talk about in a minute. We are also again privileged to be joined by a US veteran and sapper Charles Rye, who is going to take us through a topic he is able to add insight to from his own experience as a US veteran. We also have the excellent company of Ben, who, hot off the granular detail of his exit with X266, will be bringing us the uh, germane topics to the economic sphere in this war. Adrian, welcome to Tochni. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for the invitation. And um, I'm happy to see a lot of uh, the people I've uh, met um, here on Twitter supporting Ukraine for the past uh, uh, over a year already. Glad to see my friend Ben from France. So, uh, yeah, and thank you. Thank you again, Jonathan, for having me. It's great to have you here, Adrian. Um, you're very welcome. So I, I'd like to start, get us going by asking you, what inspired you personally to become a filmmaker? Well, um, actually, I um, I wanted to be a pilot, but <laughs> natural events kind of prevented me from doing that. I, um, I was born with uh, glaucoma, and uh, I... Uh, you know, drifted to filmmaking. And when I was in, um, uh, I guess I learned my English just by watching, uh, I don't know, maybe some of the older ones uh, know this uh, Turner Classic Movies or TNT. 
it was broadcast in Romania without subtitles, so I watched a lot of uh, classic uh, Hollywood films as a kid, and I don't know, I decided to become a filmmaker. And um, I studied film, but then I drifted away from it, and at some point uh, I got drawn to um, going to Ukraine, uh, and then I started my career again, essentially. How, how did you come to discover Ukraine, Adrian? Well, as I said, uh, I was uh, born with um, um, I was born uh, with glaucoma. Actually, I was born blind, and um, uh, my uh, my mother, when she was pregnant, uh, she uh, travel. I w- I'm born in 1986 in July. Uh, so uh, my mother, when she was uh, pregnant, she went on this uh, young communist youth league inter-country collaboration to the Soviet Union and uh, she actually crossed the border uh, into Ukraine on the 25th of April 1986 now for many of you that uh, date might uh, ring a bell because on the 26th 26th of April the Chernobyl disaster happened and of course uh, one of the many evils of the Soviet regime was the fact that they didn't tell the world what had happened while uh, Reactor 4 was blazing and uh, spreading radiation all over the world, um, all over Europe initially, but uh, as time went on all over the world. Um, my mother traveled, ate the local food, um, and uh, even went on for the May Day Parade while she was pregnant with me. And then when I um, came back, uh, when she came back and I was born, I was born blind. And uh, luckily, um, a very good doctor partially saved my vision. Now, it's hard to... Uh, there's no history of glaucoma in my family, and uh, the type of glaucoma uh, I have is not essentially genetic. It's um, So it's like an external factor. I cannot prove 100% uh, it's Chernobyl, but... Um, you know, um, I can talk about it later because I went to Belarus and um, found some possible connection. Anyway, so how I grew to be drawn about Ukraine, I was uh, initially very much inspired by the Maidan uprising and uh, the revolution of dignity. I um, was following the news on Ukraine before. I knew, like most of, in 2013, let's say, or 14, um, even though we're neighbors, as Romanian, were neighbors with Ukraine, I knew kind of what the, the cliches was that the world knew. I knew about the Orange Revolution. They uh, uh, took down a corrupt president, but the president that they ended up electing uh, turned out to be as corrupt as the previous one, even though they were so-called pro-European. People were disappointed, elected the corrupt president again. Chaos, corruption. And then uh, they had this uh, revolution where millions of people went on the streets with European Union flags and were dying on the streets and protest, excuse me, and protested for months against a tyrannical government just asking to let's change our ways. Let's look to the future. Let's change our country. Let's um, uh, say no to corruption. Let's say no to Russia and its influence. And let's uh, choose our own destiny. And I found that message very inspiring. And uh, although it was followed by very tragic events, um, 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 as well as the annexation of uh, Crimea and the eastern regions, I was still inspired by the fact because it was a success. The 
world president uh, ran away uh, you know with a helicopter full of money um uh, he ran to russia and the people for better or worse elected uh, a new government and um in this context i was also soon turning 13 2016 and uh, i started to remember my uh, connection with ukraine and i had a discussion with my mother about uh, how i got my uh, surgery that saved my vision and her trip to ukraine I already knew the story, but uh, one night I, uh, my mother was visiting me in Bucharest and she just, it was like the first time where she told me the story, just the two of us and we were just talking over dinner and she was crying and I realized, okay, I think I need to go to Ukraine and I was working some jobs back then. So I had some money saved up. I didn't know anyone in Ukraine. I didn't know anything in Ukraine, but I said, okay. I will start with this idea. I'm turning 30 soon. I wanna. I'm asking myself some questions about Chernobyl and uh, how uh, how its legacy affects uh, this generation that is born in the 80s, my generation in Eastern Europe. So I'll just try to meet people around my age who are uh, in one way or another affected by Chernobyl. So um, I went to Ukraine without knowing anybody, absolutely anybody. Uh, by total accident, uh, if anybody knows the site Couchsurfing, I met this uh, wonderful person, uh, a Ukrainian young lady who um, was very interested in making films and she was a writer also and a journalist and many other things. And uh, she essentially helped me and uh, we became uh, good friends. And slowly by, but surely we just traveled all over Ukraine and Belarus and to Chernobyl many, many times uh, where we met people, did interviews. Slowly we found the uh, money to also make the film because it made the film. And over five years, uh, we just did that. We made this film about uh, Ukraine and um, we became very close friends and we decided to make even more films. And the film about Chernobyl came out in... Um, 2020 and um, it uh, traveled a little bit around the world and we got some awards and uh, I think it's uh, I mean <laughs> I shouldn't say that my own film is good but uh, I'm not disappointed with it <laughs> let's put it that way <laughs> and uh, and well, then I just... sorry I don't it won it won the 2020 Odessa Film Festival um, you just described how we you had your family's own connection to to the Chernobyl disaster, and you were drawn to Ukraine for answers, and you found a, a nation fighting for to, to, to escape the, uh, the, the 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 empire that that used to occupy it. So, um, yeah, could could you maybe um touch upon filmmaking before the full scale invasion of twenty twenty two? What kind of challenges were involved, and um, uh, what was it like to make films in Ukraine during that time? Well, um. So um, I, I should also mention that uh, after this film, I also decided to move to Ukraine because uh, to me it was a very, uh, because we are making the film over five years, I was just traveling back and forth uh, between uh, Ukraine and Romania. So after, um, so in 2020, when the film was finished and launched and everything, I decided to move to Ukraine and uh, with my creative partner, Helena, who made the, who helped, who uh, we directed the film together. Um, we decided, okay, we're going to make uh, more movies here. So that's our story. But um, as I connected with the community, uh, making films in Eastern Europe in general, it's uh, definitely an endeavor of passion. 
uh, end of love because it takes a whole lot of, and especially documentaries because uh, making films takes talented people, takes a lot of money and it takes a lot of work. Um, and unfortunately in Eastern Europe, it's uh, still pretty difficult to finance films. Uh, there's not a lot of money for it. You gotta find money abroad. That's you usually why also production times last a long time. So that's a big challenge. Nevertheless, in spite of all, all of these uh, challenges, the Ukrainian cinema, I think, was uh, after 2014, was um, going through a renaissance in a way. There are uh, many excellent uh, directors of both fiction and documentary who made films that traveled in Cannes, Berlin, Sundance, um Ukrainian films got nominated for Oscars. Um you know it's it's it was something uh, was happening with the in- industry in a way that uh it was still tough. It was still tough to gather money to do your films and everything else, but the community was getting very strong and talented and they were expressing the voice of their nation and in a way uh, these aspirations of um these aspirations that I talked about earlier of wanting something better, of wanting something uh, that is not the legacy of the Russian Empire, Soviet Empire, whatever you want to call it, because in my mind, the Soviet Empire, Russian Empire is essentially the same thing with uh, a different branding. Um, um, you could see that also in the creative arts and in the in uh, cinema. So you could see... Um, you You could see... Uh, that the films they were making were speaking about uh, the, their wish for something better. Of course, there were many films focused on the uh, uh, war in because uh, the war started essentially in 2014. So there were many Ukrainian filmmakers talk, making films in the Donbass and uh, making films with uh, refu- with displaced persons. So there is there was this big trauma on the country that was uh, going on for eight years until the full-scale invasion and it was explored in cinema but there was also many creative works many comedies so uh, in spite of the financial difficulties that essentially all eastern european countries face when it comes to cinema uh the industry was flourishing um and uh i uh I was happy to, it's one of the reasons I moved because I was seeing a lot of talented people that were doing great, great things and I wanted to be a part of it. During this war, we've seen uh, Ukrainian filmmakers give their lives, um, or had their lives taken from them. Um, Hannah Bilobrava um, and director Mantas Kivit Daishas in Mariupol, and of course the cousin Philharmonic conductor. Yuri Kapatenko. Um, would you say that during this time of resistance against the invasion, that yourself having suffered a disability, you, you, you've been drawn to this to this country in which arts is thriving despite the, despite the challenges uh, and existential threat it faces? Well, I mean, uh, I, I spoke about before the war, but now the challenges are very different in a way. Uh, I would also like to mention um, um, uh, one of the best Ukrainian uh, film editors, uh, Viktor Onyusko, uh, who uh, died away, died uh, uh, right on uh, New Year's Eve in Bakhmut. Um, he was 
uh, he was, uh, I didn't know him personally, but he was very much loved in the community and he was, um, he had a young five-year-old daughter and he was also a musician and a very chill guy. I can't find another word, but, uh, you know, when the world, uh, Mexico for scale invasion started, he decided to volunteer and, uh, there's many Ukrainian filmmakers right now who are on the front lines or are in some capacity serving in the military or serving in um, in aid organizations or so on. So there are um, uh, a notable name. Some some of you might have heard about him is Oleg Sensov, who was actually held captive by the by the Russians. Uh, after 2014, was released and uh, he joined the military and he's been uh, on the front line since the beginning. Um, and he's uh, like a, a celebrity in Ukraine, essentially, but he's still putting his life on the line um, every single day. He was part of the liberation of Chernobyl as well, by the way. Um, and um, yeah, I think um, I uh, the challenges that are happening now... Um, is that this um, we speak often about a genocidal war, which it definitely is. So we can spend an entire hour uh, only going through um, a small part of the acts of genocide that uh, the Russian Federation or the country, hopefully soon to be formally known as the Russian Federation, has committed upon the Ukrainian people. But an, a form of uh, genocide that I think is more subtle and uh, more insidious is um, a cultural genocide that is happening not only to uh, to the film industry but also to all uh, all the arts because people who should be uh, expressing their creativity and um, express uh, expressing uh, uh, the zeitgeist or the breath of their nation at that moment instead of using their talents to do so are uh, forced to defend it with a gun in their hand or live abroad as immigrants finding a job to survive um, and uh, that when the nation culture is attacked uh, I, I believe um, um, the nation itself is uh, in danger because um, you need culture to be able to keep the spirit of the nation going and um, um, I can give an example in films it takes uh, two or three years to make a fiction film on average it takes about five years to make a documentary um, if you want to make a creative festival one one the kind of films that you know are remembered over the years and okay, this year was pretty rich with documentaries and fiction films because uh, in festivals all over the world from Ukraine, because uh, there were films still in production or films that were just finished uh, before um, before the full scale invasion. And uh, last the on 2022, all production stopped of fiction, and obviously none of them will happen in 2023 either. So that means that in two or three years, you will have. No, I mean, starting about this at the end of this year and at the beginning of next year and for a while now, you all will have no Ukrainian fiction films anywhere representing their country and their culture uh, at international venues or festivals because they will just not be made. There will be an entire uh, um, void of Ukrainian cinema. And uh, documentaries are still being made, but they're mostly focused on the war. And... Um, 
uh, yeah, uh, Ukraine will only be represented uh, about this its experience in wartime in cinema. Um, and I, although I think that's very important and it definitely should continue, we are also deprived of the many other things that Ukrainian artists can tell us. So, um, yeah, this form of cultural genocide is absolutely uh, terrifying to me at uh, this point. Thanks, Adrian. I, I, during, during wartime, those differences between peacetime and wartime you, you spoke to, I've, th there is no need for fiction. Like you said, they are living a reality which is distinct and thankfully uh, not, not understandable to people like myself living in a peacetime country. I was going to ask you along these lines, in, in countries living during peace, it might be perceived that fighting wars is, um, is something that trained armed forces do um, and not documentary filmmakers, not artists, not musicians from a local philharmonic orchestra. Is it is it surprising to you that um, uh, Ukraine has been able to mobilize its 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 artists, its documentary filmmakers, its musicians in the way it has? Well, I personally would. For me, it's not surprising because uh, I personally would like to feel think that if you have the sensitivity to express yourself through uh, any artistic form, then you have compassion and you have uh, love for your fellow uh, human beings. And uh, when you are faced uh, with a brutal invader that uh, has uh, uh, should any, any semblance of humanity in the way they're pursuing this invasion, then uh, you, as an artist, you feel compelled to do something, even if you're not able to pick up a weapon and actually go and um, push the invader back, but you are compelled to help, to, I don't know, um, um, do humanitarian aid, to spread the word. So I've seen many artists being um, mobilizing themselves to uh, to do so because... Uh, you know, it's it's the right thing to do. I, I spoke about um, Victor, the editor, who died um, uh, on New Year's Eve. I mean, he, he didn't think about joining the army. There are no other filmmakers who are soldiers, and they mostly didn't think about, uh, or artists in general, they didn't think they're ever going to pick up a weapon. That's the point. But when you're faced with that choice of, uh, your country is under attack by an invader who essentially denies your right to exist. What do you do? And uh, you mentioned uh, how is it for people who are not living in um, in a place like this? Um, well, your face. This is like the kind of choice um, that uh, any decent human being is faced with when their country is invaded. So, um, I think. Um, the level of mobilization among artists is not surprising at all just because it's the right thing to do. And I believe that any if any of your countries got invaded by a foreigner who for an army which wanted to erase it, then uh, many of you would join up. Even if right now you think I would never pick a weapon up a weapon and shoot someone in my life. But when you're faced with this choice of existence, you kind of have to make it. Thanks, Adrian. I've put up in the nest for um, all our live Twitter listeners um, uh, a little bit about Victor. Um, 
you posted it on the, on on the first of January this year. Um, you said that uh, Victor on on Onis Onisko. I'm pr- pr- pronouncing his name correctly. Uh, Victor Onisko, down. Yeah. Um, he died in combat defending his wife, his um, nine-year-old daughter, and all of us who want to live free. Ukraine is fighting monsters with diamonds. I didn't know Victor um, personally. I just knew, he, you know, that kind of person where uh, people, you just know him by, uh, uh, you know, that kind of person that inspires other is the kind of person I uh, always strive to be, but I've never, and I still think I have a long way to go. Uh, but, you know, that kind of person, you don't have to know them, but you know that they inspire so many people. And I saw um, pictures of his funeral afterwards and the party, because he wanted a party when he died. He didn't want people to grieve for him. Uh, of course, people did. Um, and he gathered so many people from all over. Many of my friends from Ukraine were there. And it's um, that kind of person that magnetizes an entire community. And uh, that's why I said the Ukraine is fighting monsters with diamonds. Because what is Russia sending? It's sending uh, rapists, criminals, drunkards. Uh, it's sending... Uh, the dregs of their society uh, if Russian society can have any dregs I mean you know <laughs> if, I, if I get really into it <laughs> but uh, let's not go there just yet um, and uh, Ukraine is sending its best it's sending uh, the people who are fighting for the ones they, they love uh, it's sending as you said the philharmonic uh, uh, players uh, artists, painters, university professors, doctors and um, yeah uh, Ukraine is fighting dim- uh, is fighting monsters with diamonds. That's how uh, that's how I feel, and that's how I feel. Uh, they need so much uh, support, and that's why I'm angered uh, when I read the reactions in the Western press or Western people who have become disconnected from this. Like, why should I care? Of course, you should care because it's uh, literally. Since World War II, I definitely believe that this is a war where uh, it is a clear choice between good and evil, and um, Ukraine is the good. With the deaths of so many filmmakers and artists in in Russian captivity, with this trend seeming quite deliberate, why do you think Russia targets Ukrainian documentary filmmakers, Ukrainian philharmonic conductors. Well, I'm I'm not sure it targets them in particular, uh, because it's the Russia is targeting everybody. It's targeting women and children. It uh, obviously from just seeing Mariupol being leveled, Bakhmut being leveled, uh, all these other cities uh, in in eastern Ukraine being leveled. Uh, we can understand that they are not targeting individuals, they're targeting an entire nation. It's a form of genocide. But we also saw Russia burning a lot of Ukrainian books, and we also saw Russia looting museums. So I, even though they are targeting everybody, I uh, do believe that uh, it is an essential part of their war goals to erase uh, Ukrainian uh, culture. And uh, what uh, and to achieve this goal, they of course um, 
killing people who contribute to this culture is um, is um, essentially uh, is essentially one of the means that they are achieving this goal. I I do believe they won't be successful. I believe that Ukraine will come even, come out even stronger out of this because it has inspired a lot of other people to tell stories. Because I've been uh, I've been um, uh, talking to people who are soldiers who uh, never picked up a camera but made films or started to record or started to express their thoughts in writing. Um, so. Uh, Russia tragically is killing a lot of Ukrainian cultural figures right now, but I think uh, um, it, this will only embolden Ukraine to have a rebirth and a, a reconstruction unparalleled to what we've seen since World War II in Europe, um, just because um, um, their spirit is so strong and. Uh, and there's no amount of uh, people that Russia can erase to erase the Ukrainian spirit. Thank you, Adrian. I think that the Russians' attempts to uh, to um, prevent the recording of of their crimes by Ukrainian and other filmmakers is is evident, and the the heroism that uh, of people like Victor that you've that you've outlined has been um. Has been very moving. Thank you. Um, I'd like to ask you, um, take you back a little bit, if we could, to the invasion of the 24th of February uh, last year, when a person you made your very successful film with, Helena, who was uh, uh, in your 2020 film, uh, which won the Odessa Film Festival, was was your co-partner um, in, in making this film. Could you touch upon... Um, what happens in in terms of her experience as you as Ukrainian um, on the twenty fourth of February last year? So um, Helena uh, is. We were working on a new documentary in twenty twenty one. We've had been working on it for almost a year. Um, it was focused on um, disability rights issues, and uh, we were working uh, about uh, 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 on a film about the. Um, uh, child care system in Ukraine because um, it, it was a subject that wasn't much explored and we had some uh, fascinating protagonists that we were following um, and then um, and I was living in Ukraine back then and um, funnily enough we wanted to incorporate our production company in February 2022 and um, um, Helena um, somehow uh, said that we should wait to incorporate and to pursue this film uh, that we were working on because she was really sure that the Russians are going to invade because, uh, as you know, that there were true build-ups at the border for months uh, before that. And um, I, uh, I came back to Romania uh, when the invasion started because uh, I couldn't earn a living anymore in Ukraine and uh, uh, because I have, like... Mm, 25% of the vision that normal people have, I would have been a complete hindrance uh, in any efforts there. Um, 
And uh, Helena was supposed to come too. She, um, I mean, I offered her the place in Romania. Friends of hers in the filmmaking community offered her places all over Europe. And um, she um, kept postponing it. And she helped, uh, uh, she was helping uh, people to get to the border and get out if they wanted to leave. She was volunteering as a civilian. Um, and uh, ultimately she just didn't want to go. She kept postponing and at some point, no, I'll stay and volunteer here as a civilian. And uh, then um, uh, she was uh, with a team of people that were driving vans uh, when the Russians were besieging Kiev. Um, they were driving ba- vans to um, Irpin, to close to Irpin or to Bucha or to uh, um, Kharkiv or to Chernigiv and they would just evacuate uh, children and old people and bring them to cities in western Ukraine um, and uh, she did that for a while uh, for a month or so and then uh, on the 9th of April I think or 8th of April uh, 2022 she was supposed to go to it was by the way it was the first time she was going to the Donetsk region even though she's a Ukrainian it was the first time uh, um, she was in eastern Ukraine um, and she was supposed to pick up some uh, people from uh, Kramatorsk um, and um, um, she got to the Kramatorsk train station uh, shortly um, just under an hour after uh, uh, that uh, rocket attack that killed uh, 51 people uh, men, women, children mostly women and children and uh, the press didn't got the, get there yet and the cleanup barely had started so she saw the bloody remains of people on the platform of the train station and um, at that point she decided that it wasn't enough what she was doing um, so she decided to uh, volunteer for the Ukrainian National Guard so uh, for uh, a year now she has been serving uh, in the Ukrainian National Guard and spending, uh, and she was involved in uh, some of the most uh, difficult fighting in the East last summer. Her unit was uh, in Zolote um, and they held on for quite a while. Her unit was the last unit to leave that city. Uh, they were surrounded on three sides for over a month, as some of you might remember. And uh, she was all over the front in the east um and yes she's the she was a girl who liked to dance who uh, was learning french who was uh, you know pursuing a career as a filmmaker it wasn't like uh <laughs> she had never shot a weapon before she had never picked up a weapon before she had zero military uh, experience and zero interest in the military before the full-scale invasion and now she has been a, a combat medic and then um, uh, and the soldier for uh, over a year now that's uh, her life at uh, at this moment that's that's really inspiring uh, Adrian I mean this war has seen Ukrainian filmmakers forced out of necessity like you just described and duty to their loved one's country to fight and defend for their country I, so the the impact that you think this is going to have on you on filmmakers in ukraine in the future um what what kind of future do you think that will look like for ukrainian filmmakers currently fighting 
obviously Derek, I mean, there's, I, I've been going back to Ukraine since the invasion started to bring different supplies, um, help uh, Helena out with uh, different supplies and some of my friends there. Um, I've, um, and by just by talking to them, it's, none of us can understand men. I know we have some veterans here and, um, or maybe there's people who have uh, veterans in their family. No matter how much you care for someone, uh, you will never be able to understand their trauma experienced in, uh, uh, in a war zone. Nobody will be able to understand what these people have seen there. Um, so many of them will have to go, first of all, their biggest challenge is to be alive or to come back with, without a missing limb or, uh, with a debilitating, uh, uh, injury. And then even if they are unscathed physically, they will uh, live with all of this for an entire lifetime. And uh, the only people who will be able to fully understand them are the people who were there with them or people who have seen the things that they have seen. Um, so honestly, I have no idea how these filmmakers will uh, tell the story of their country and how they will contribute to their country. Because the truth is, some of them uh, will be lost by this um they won't be able to, nobody will be able to return to normal. Um, some of them maybe will not work again, but maybe a few uh, will uh, find new strength to tell, um, uh, to have a profound perspective on their country. And also they fought for it. Uh, they've sacrificed for it. So I'm sure some of them will have an interest in making sure that uh, Ukraine in the future has uh, is going in the right direction and it's uh, going uh, to become the country that they fought for because they fight for their homes and their families but they're also fighting for uh, for their hopes that their country and their homeland will be a better place so i don't know exactly how they will be after the war because all of this but i'm i'm sure that if they will make films um it, it will be an, their voice will be essential in the reconstruction of Ukraine. Thank you, Adrian. We very much appreciate you saying that. I'm going to put a quick shout out to anyone who has any questions for Adrian here. Um, please do request the mic. It's in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen. Um, you're very welcome to come up and ask um, a question to Adrian on um, on the topics discussed or any questions on the topics that you're here discussed on Tochi this evening. Uh, ben, please go ahead. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, all. Jonathan. Uh, Edwin, thank you very, very much for talking to us today. Uh, you have such a powerful voice and uh, say so about her, an artist, but a uh, well-structured uh, speaker. It's pretty moving to, to listen to you. Um, the question I had was, I I'd like to know if you could share with us some of the ideas that uh, are fusing through your brain, or have been fusing through your brain over the past, um, over the past year, for the past fourteen months. Um, what, what you, what the war has inspired you? What uh, missing your friends has inspired you? What being uh, far from the aftermath inspired you? Or what came 
deep in the action from from friends to new making new friends, etc. Uh, have you have you have you had the idea and can you share a few with it with us? Well, it's been I mean, I moved out of uh, Romania to start a new life in Ukraine, and then the war, um, I moved out of Ukraine to start a new life in Romania because the war started. Um, being here and uh, thinking about the petty problems and, uh, mm, you know, just seeing people uh, appreciating life and then thinking about uh, what's going on there with people I know, um it is a bit of a disconnection um it's more than that i uh, believe that um um ukrainians in spite of all the tragedy have uh, have gotten a gift and i'm not saying this word lightly because they've uh, i've seen more optimism and appreciation for life and kindness among the Ukraine, my Ukrainian friends who are either fighting or um, uh, who are hiding in bomb, bomb shelters or have lost their livelihoods because uh, they war has uh, essentialized um, has put into focus what's really important and uh, when I'm here in Romania and I hear people oh I, I would never pick up a weapon to defend this stupid country well, you don't know. Uh, you don't know what. And maybe, I don't know, you can ask your friends in your country, would you pick up a weapon to defend your country? And maybe many of them will say no. But you don't know until it happens to you. And um, I, I believe that this experience had taught me a great appreciation for uh, being alive and a great appreciation for the luck I had throughout my life. Life. Uh, greater appreciation for the um, people that care for me and love me because um, it is um, it, it is so easy to fall into to lose yourself to fall into a default mode where you live life without thinking, without caring and um, I, and I must admit that I myself often fall into that but um, I believe that seeing this much um, pain and uh, violence but also so much love uh, inside of Ukraine um, it, it has put things um, into perspective for me as for ideas of um, of uh, films right now it's hard to focus on a personal idea of a film but uh, it um, it has inspired me to be focused on um, working with Ukrainian filmmakers I'm working with uh, Helena now on a documentary she's making about her experience as a soldier there um, so I believe that okay I cannot pick up a gun I cannot fight I don't have a lot of money to send uh, I don't know, I don't have any medical training, I actually don't know how to do many things uh, but I know how to tell a story and how to make movies more or less, and even that I'm not uh, I wish I would grow even more um, so I'll try to use that to contribute to helping Ukraine and then have 
friends who have medical training and are volunteering as paramedics. I have friends who are good at uh, fundraising and sending things. I'm speaking about foreigners now or people for, who are not Ukrainians and they're doing so. I, this is my way of contributing uh, in a way. Um, I don't know what the impact will be, but uh, it's also um, uh, I would feel guilty for not doing nothing, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. Uh, thank you very much. You, you answered this with a, um, with with a lot of growth. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. But thank you, Adrian. And if I may say so, as this war um, goes into its fifteenth month, I think a lot of Ukraine's allies will will be watching Ukraine's continued resistance. And I mean, Ukraine's allies when they hear stories like this feel overwhelmed and it's it's incredible to to hear stories like the ones you've relayed to us today stories like that of helena's victors so um thank you for recording them please do continue in in your work we've had a couple of people come up to ask you questions so very happy to say jacoby is up welcome jacoby thank you thank you for um the film that you've created, um, I look forward to watching it. My questions are about your technical commentary about, you know, any innovations that you may have encountered. Obviously, there's hardships making a film in a in a war zone, both, you know, just with the technology itself and everything that supports maintaining that technology. But if I, I wonder if there's any innovations that you've encountered that have made it made some of the process easier and maybe innovations in networking with other with other filmmakers like yourself that has made some difficulties um, much more manageable. Thank you for the question. Well, when it comes to innovation, I mean, uh, it depends on where you film. Because if you're filming on the many people I know are not really filming on the front line or in combat because then that's your focus of uh, your only focus is to stay alive and you're not thinking about uh, turning on the camera, microphone and so on um, so technically the technology hasn't changed that much but I would like to point out that um, you know every soldier in Ukraine now has a GoPro on their helmet maybe not every soldier but every other soldier, uh, doesn't matter if it's a six, seven hundred dollar camera, um um, older ones are even cheaper and everybody puts them on then helmet and helmet and I, I believe there are hundreds of thousands if not millions of hours of footage of combat of the front line of life there um, so there is a lot of material to tell these stories but it's also important to understand that the combat is not everything um, we are uh, mm, repulsed as human beings by violence and there is only so much violence you can show before uh, people are put off and at some point you have to ask yourself is war only about violence or is it also about the people and I believe that the most important thing is to understand the people who are fighting it uh, not to see um, you know shelling combat uh, people getting uh, shot or treated for their wounds. Um, but on the other, another 
part of your question about the networks, I was happy to see that um, um, the filmmaking community abroad has mobilized to help Ukraine. Uh, many Ukrainian filmmakers have gotten financial emergency financial support because they lost, lost their livelihoods. Um, there are networks, many of the film festivals and big film organizations in Europe uh, and cultural organizations have uh, started initi initiatives to finance, to finance uh, Ukrainian projects or to support Ukrainian filmmakers. They're also sending equipment. Last year I went with a big backpack of uh, uh, SD cards, batteries, microphones, uh, GoPros and uh, hard drives, different <laughs> different accessories for Ukrainian filmmakers. So there is like this little, there is this widespread network of support. Um, and also film festivals uh, have been featuring Ukrainian filmmakers and Ukrainian films. Um, my only worry is that uh, the support holds because, um, um, you know, there's, um, there is some, I hate to use the word fatigue, fatigue but uh, it was wonderful that the support uh, happened in 2022 and ha is still happening to some degree now, but I've seen it, seen it wane in the last few months. And I am uh, worried that as this war drags on, um, uh, support for cultural workers uh, will be will be diminished. Um, but for now, it it is holding, and I, I'm happy to see the mobilization of the European cultural community to support uh, Ukrainian cinema. I hope that answered it. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you, Jakubi. Thank you, Adrian. That fatigue you spoke to need, needs to be acknowledged. It's uh, it, it's a very important thing to acknowledge. Ukraine's allies uh, will not re relent in their efforts to support Ukraine, but there there have certainly been um, there's certainly work to do. I think it's fair to say there are better allies that can be that that we can be for Ukraine at times, and um, that's only been evident in the last year. Adrian, I'm going to have to um, uh, say thank you very much indeed for coming to speak to us on Tochini today. We we have uh, we have come up to the to the end of the segment. Uh, we'd love you to come back if you can. Is there anything you'd like to um, to to say in closing before we move on? Um, yeah, thank you very much, Jonathan, and uh, thank you all for uh, organizing Tochni. I've been following, or if I wasn't here, I've been listening to to the recording on uh, Spotify. Um, so uh, yes, I, I I really appreciate you all for uh, um, organizing the support network for Ukraine, and uh, I appreciate you for keeping the message of Ukraine uh, going, and. Um, Yes, thank you for inviting me and allowing me the time and space to speak on this issue here with you tonight. So, um, I don't know, the times are tough. There are days when I open up uh, the news or Twitter or whatever and it feels uh, like I'm falling into despair because the war is in its 15th month, as you mentioned, and uh, more good people are being lost and the world seems to go crazy at some point. 
but I always remind myself that um, there is a lot of love in the world and uh, there is a lot of love and support coming from Ukraine. I've literally had Ukrainian friends support me in times of desperation while they are facing a life and death situation. So it is important to keep having their backs. It is important not to lose hope. Um, and it is uh, important to keep their, uh, help them. They have their own voice. Uh, help them get that voice to as uh, many uh, eyes and ears as possible. So thank you very much and Slava Ukraini. And please keep bringing those voices to us, Adrian, and thank you for the work you do. Please do check out Adrian's uh, Vimo. Uh, it's in the nest, and listeners on Spotify can um, find it on the main account. It's uh, it's a it's a great film, and uh, I don't use that word lightly. As you heard, it has a uh, a personal context to it, and uh, yeah, please please do give it a watch if you can, and give Adrian a follow if you haven't done already. So moving on to uh, our military segment, we have. Um, our wonderful U.S. Uh, sapper veteran, Charles Rye. Charles, I hear you've got a very interesting topic, uh, one which is relevant to uh, any potential forthcoming Ukrainian offensive. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. Um, yeah, the topic for today is about Russian tactics or Russian approach to urban warfare. We won't get too much into the upcoming offensive what could happen what may happen uh, how the ukrainians will approach it um but what we will look at is kind of why what we have seen over the last couple of months why it's happening the way it is happening and with recent announcement for example you know that that wagner may be uh pulling out of bakhmut for example we'll see whether that's actually a real uh statement or whether that's just some kind of maneuvering um but i thought today we could look at you know, how does Russian doctrine and how do Russian tactics um, approach urban warfare? And a little bit how that's different than what Western armies do. And we'll look at some current examples. So we'll also look at some past examples from last spring. Um, and then we may refer to back to the battles for Grozny um, back in the late 90s, early in last one was in 2000. Um, so essentially, we're going to approach this looking at it in three questions so question number one is why are they quote-unquote taking cities um why don't they just go around them why are they why are they battling for bakhmut uh, every block why are they destroying marinka um completely um what is it in their decision making process that that makes them uh, do this the second one is is what does it mean for them to take a city so what when they look at you know in taking Bakhmut what does that actually mean in Russian doctrine um the Russian decision making and third is how do they actually do it um what are the different types of tactics and different types of operations that they uh that they use now the resources for this are primarily the Russian uh the Russian manual specifically from the VDD from the airborne they're basically field manuals on urban operations. There are a couple of them, um, and that's kind of where the where the main resource is. And then, of course, um, all the examples that we've seen over the last several months. 
So first question, so why, why are they taking cities? Why don't they just bypass them? Well, it, early on in the invasion, they did actually uh, bypass a lot of cities or try to bypass a, a lot of settlements because they had the desire for speed and the unit's objectives uh, were not necessarily that settlement, that town or that city um, in as much as, as they were beyond that. And they did try to bypass several of them. Indeed, trying to take them on the move was actually not the preferred method at that time. Certainly they did. And Kharkiv, for example, um, Chernihiv, uh, they had to, to try to take parts of them. They, they failed in, most, in those cases, but they tried to bypass them. Now, since the Russians have taken a more defensive posture or the lines have stabilized since the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensives last fall, they... They have really had to try to take the cities. One of the things that has really changed in this battlefield, or really been a wake-up call to the Russians, has been the effectiveness of the anti-tank guided missiles, things like the Javelin and the N-Law, which prevented them from using different approaches toward taking a city of driving in. We saw the ambushes that happened early on in the war, um, the effectiveness of the Javelin, N-Law, and, and others in destroying Russian uh, mechanization armor personnel vehicles and tanks and so therefore they they have to sort of take them in this way also that means because of drones and artillery and accurate artillery by the ukrainians the russians are not doing well in the fields we see this for example in the attack uh well, the assaults last month around vulador um and even before that the russians uh when they try to uh, attack over open terrain, they are getting absolutely hammered. They're actually doing better in the city. This is kind of quotes better in the cities than they are out in the countryside. And if their if their goal is to try to attrit the Ukrainian armed forces, um, it works better in the urban areas, um, such as uh, Popazna or um, yeah, any of the other ones, uh, several Donetsk, for example, it works better trying to um, to uh, attack the Ukrainian armed forces there in the urban areas than it does in the fields. And finally, Russian doctrine has a really interesting thing in that it says uh, specifically that some localities, some cities uh, may have political significance and that capturing them can apply a crushing psychological blow to the enemy and raise the morale of the of the population so they really do see cities like Bakhmut or Severodonetsk as political items not just military ones this is a little bit different than U.S. doctrine as much in that you wouldn't see this kind of political, psychological blow aspect to urban warfare. Certainly, nobody can deny that it exists, but it's not really built into the decision-making process. So the Russians really want to fight in the cities for a couple of reasons. the Their psychological crushing blow aspect, the fact that they are actually do better in the cities, we'll get to why a little bit later, but mostly because of the the anti-tank guided missiles, drone observation, accurate artillery fire, and also that they've tried other ways of, of doing it and it didn't work for them last year 
And even going back even to Grozny, they had a lot of lessons learned. They've repeated several of the same mistakes again and are relearning them. The second question is, what does it mean for them to take a city? Now, there's a few interesting things in in Russian teachings here. Uh, is Okay, so one, bypass for them doesn't really necessarily mean bypass, the way that it is, is used uh, in Western militaries. It actually more means like lay siege or to isolate. And isolating this is to you know, is it is an important part, but it's a little bit different than bypassing. The main way that they want to take cities is to quote unquote take them on the move. And take them on the move is what they want to do is just basically drive into the city, take key terrain features and like squares, traffic circles, large intersections, main buildings. And there's a lot of literature for them on how to do that, how they want to move with their vehicles mounted and dismounted how they want to clear certain um, areas around the main avenues of approach to these key terrain features, how to react to ambushes and all of these things. The preferred method that they say that they want to do is to take these things on the move, which is basically means drive into the city, try to get to key terrain features, and thus have, have control over the city by holding these key terrain features, whether they be large buildings, intersections, traffic circles, for example. And that's actually quite similar to the way Western militaries try to approach it, is they try to segment off in certain areas of the city. In other words, sort of bite off a, a piece of the urban area by capturing key terrain features to kind of isolate that, then uh, clear that isolated area. This could be a whole neighborhood. This could be whole um, sections of the city. But they try to use these kind of push in with the, kind of these thunder run type activities um, to get to key terrain features. But then the third way is what they call storming. And this is essentially what we're seeing now. For them, the storming is if they determine that the city does not have any economic need, then they would just destroy the city. Um, it doesn't say it in that words. But essentially what the manuals say is if the, if it's determined that we do not need this city in the future or this urban area in the future, then you should use lots of artillery and you should do uh, bombardments of the city and basically move through the city block by block um, to destroy the enemy. Now, what's interesting in Russian doctrine is, is that they do not actually have much talk about civilians on the battlefield. Um, they do mention civilians, but they do not talk about them in any way of how to deal with them. Uh, civilians on the battlefield are so, deal with them in, in, say, a positive way. How do you work with local civilian leaders because they're not trying to do security operations. They're trying to actually just take it over and, and, and own it. So as we would expect, the guidance that is given on civilian considerations in, in urban warfare is minimal. It basically just says that they are um, a problem that needs to be dealt with. Now in Grozny going back, they did things like they um, they 
uh, used messaging to do like psychological things or ultimatums that we are going to bombard this area in the next 24, 48 hours and we need to get out. doesn't seem like they're doing that in Ukraine. But essentially, they're, they're, in the Russian decision-making within their military uh, doctrine, there really is no approach to how to handle civilians on the battlefield. I don't think that this is a surprise, but it was surprising for me to see that there's just nothing in there. I would have thought that there was at least something, but they actually um, are doing what they say should be done. The third uh, question is, of course, like how do they actually take the cities? Now, cities are really specific terrain features, and, and so they have to be analyzed in different ways. So we observation, for example, we usually start with observation. Observation in cities is very, very difficult. It's, it, you cannot see very far in a city. This is one of the reasons why it's advantageous for the Russians to use light infantry tactics with just um, bombardment and the storming approach than it is to expose their armored vehicles to anti-tank guided missiles like javelins, which have longer um, engagement ranges, longer uh, maximum effective ranges, um, and in areas of open observation. You can imagine if you can shoot a, a javelin 800 meters across open fields, then that tank is much more, um, is, is that, that tank is very vulnerable. In comparison, if you use light infantry in an absolutely rubbleized city and you destroy the block in front of you with artillery, and then you simply push your light, you push your infantry into it, um, you will actually be somewhat more effective if your goal is to attrit the enemy. And remember, success for the Russians in this case is not to take Bakhmut as a city. It doesn't view any, it doesn't. It doesn't place any value on the civilians, the economic ability. All of that is does not matter. For them, it's the psychologically crushing blow that they would like to um, uh, impose on, on the Ukrainians. So observation is a huge one uh, when we're talking about how we're fighting in cities. Now, the problem, the problem, not the problem, the challenge that both armies are having at the moment in terms of observations is that drones have completely changed how observation works. It used to be in urban environment without drones that you were really, really limited in how far you could see. Like I mentioned, you can only see to the next building. You can only see to the next house. Um, if you are in a, in a street, you may be able to see all the way down the street. But compared to being in farmlands, um, your observation is very, very low. Now, drones have completely changed that, which mean that... Russian tactics of trying to use APCs or infantry fighting vehicles and tanks in urban areas is much less effective because now the Ukrainian drone operators can see the tanks way before they even get to... They can see the tanks before the tanks can see the objective that they're trying to shoot at. So if a platoon of, of tanks and BMPs has an objective to... Uh, provide direct fire in support of infantry on a specific building, um, the drones can see that tank before that tank can even get close to that building. So I think this is one of the reasons why we're not seeing a lot of infantry fighting vehicles inside of the city. Um, so that's on the observation side. When we're talking about um, cover and concealment, which is the next part of terrain analysis we look at, um, one of the things with simply flattening the city does is to remove cover 
Now it rubbleizes the city, so concealment is still possible, but it removes cover. One of the even going back to Grozny in two thousand, and even stated in the in the manuals, thermal barrack weapons, so like the toss, is preferred in an urban terrain because a lot of buildings are made out of reinforced concrete, um, and these weapons are much more in their minds, much more an effective uh, weapon in urban terrain. So that's one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot of thermobaric weapons in, in Bakhmut and in other cities. This is nothing new for the Russians. This is actually how they are taught how to use those weapons is in urban environments to completely remove all possibility of cover for the defenders in that next block so that that light infantry then can then move forward. Now, an interesting question I didn't have answered um, coming into this was in Grozny, one thing that they did is they actually used their artillery much more in a direct fire position. So not an indirect fire, like further away, but actually trying to get the artillery up close to the objective within a few kilometers so that they had line of sight. The reason why they did this was because it was easier to then um, coordinate and adjust fires. They didn't need to have the, the levels of communication to go back to adjust fires. Also, one thing that is a little different, but one thing that is different between the Chechen war and here in the war in Ukraine, the Chechens, their tactic to try to combat this approach was to try to get very, very close to the Russians and stay very, very close. So to hug them so that the Russians could not use their fires and air support as effectively without hitting themselves. In this situation, except for maybe in, in Bakhmut, in some of these areas, there is enough of a of a contested area between the two front lines. I don't think that the the Ukrainians are actually trying to get up close to the Russians and try to hug them because they're also using their own artillery and mortars to try to stop Russian advances. If we go then to obstacles, one of the things, obstacles being the next item of terrain analysis, cities include a lot of various different types of obstacles, linear danger areas such as roads and streets that need to be crossed. They have roadblocks, especially after they have been rubbleized. It's very difficult for vehicles to try to move through those cities in any aspect, in, in any effective way. There are also, most cities are built upon rivers, and these are linear obstacles that need to be crossed. You're not going to see as many minefields in cities just because it's more difficult to, you can't dig them into asphalt. You may uh, see IEDs and other kinds of mine charges set up for ambush purposes, claymore mines, um, other things like that, which can be obstacles to mobility. But obstacles here is not is not really a huge, um, not a huge part of, of what we're seeing right now, other than the rubble. You're not seeing a lot of engineer equipment and engineers being needed in these assaults, other than zappers to um, basically blow holes in walls to gain entry to buildings that haven't uh, that are still standing, um, but again, with the approach of a massive uh, bombardment, especially using thermobaric weapons to destroy all defensive positions and then just move uh, piece by piece, block by block into the city, uh, that's not as much of, a, of an issue. Now, key terrain features is the next one. So, typically, when we talk about Western doctrine in urban operations, the planning would start with key terrain features. And they would say, okay, well, here is the, the post office, here is the train station, here is a, is a major traffic circle. What we want to do is we want to uh, push through down avenues of approach, assault that, hold it, and so therefore then we can start to 
divide the city into pieces and thus then control it, also then uh, engage with the civilians in, in whatever way is necessary to try to secure the city and and make it so that the enemy can't communicate, can't move, all of these kinds of things. In the storming approach, the Russians don't look at key terrain features. I think even if we look at the, the Battle of Bakhmut, for example, you know, things like the railway station are actually not as important to the Russians as they are to maybe Western doctrine. Because for them, it's just a, it's just another building. The way that they prepare all of these assaults is that they number all of the houses, all of the buildings. We've seen images of these maps that have been uh, intercepted or collected of just, you know, every single, every single house, every building uh, being numbered. That's how they do it. And they basically just go building one to two to three to four to five and and that's their approach to to urban warfare and the lot the last one is, is then the avenues of approach now one of the things that is very very important in russian approach to urban warfare and in, in this storming part so not taking it on the move not bypassing but this storming uh, style of of attacking a city or an urban area is getting the foothold getting that bridgehead into basically the first block of houses. So for the Ukrainians, it has been very important that they prevent, they keep the Russians in the fields. They need to prevent them from getting even into that first block of the city because once they do that, then they can start this systematic bombardment uh, going street by street, block by block, and simply destroying and leveling the city, you know, so that they can put out and in a, in a message that we have taken the city, even though that city, of course, uh, no longer exists as a city, uh, because it, it's it's only the attack is only designed to be a psychological uh, or morale impact, a political game. So that's the main issue with with avenues of approach. Now, what all of this brings together. And this is kind of my reading of the situation is, is that if we look at the war through the Russian lens, if we look at it through their doctrine, if we look at it through their war aims, if we look at it in terms of their own casualties are not that important, they want to get into a war of attrition so that they can use your, their strategic advantage of manpower, assuming that population control and 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 descent in in russia is is held in check then attacking in the cities is actually the most effective way in their in their decision making to try to do that now the only concern that i would have looking forward is we know that certain parts of of the armed forces of ukraine you know they had very very similar manuals for a very long time the Ukrainian armed forces, when they approach urban areas, they do not really want to get into that situation. Their advantage, especially with Western equipment, will be in the field where they can utilize the optics and sensors at longer ranges to destroy Russian armor and mechanized forces and to not get into a light infantry block-by-block battle, also considering the Ukrainians will need to be very careful with their artillery ammunition and these are their own cities that they will want to to take to take over again so this is a very special way of 
of approaching urban warfare. It's written down in a very special way by the Russians. It is implemented in a very special way. They have been doing this for years. It is brutally effective in the case of Russian style of Russian uh, measures of success. Certainly not anything the Ukrainians should do when they're approaching urban combat in, in, in their offensive. But that's kind of an overview of the Russian approach to urban warfare. Uh, if there are any questions, I'd be happy to take some. So I was going to comment um, on, on perhaps part of the rationale why they're going for cities instead of open terrain. Uh, and you hammered on it with the political part. Um, so my addendum to that would be that taking cities are places that are recognizable to the, to the Russian public. I'm blanking on the name in Russian. They don't call it Bakhmut. It's Artemyovsk or something along that line. And that's a city that Russians know of. They've heard about it. When Russia takes it, it's a place they can point to and say, we took the city. We're winning. Taking some hamlet, taking open fields is militarily important. It's necessary. It's vital. But it doesn't win points. Um, it doesn't give you anything other than, you know, you can you can tell the next level supervisor, well, we've moved forward here. And someone with a military mind might might take that seriously, but the political apparatus and the general public is not going to care that you took a field. They're not going to care that you slightly improved your position for the next attack because they don't know where that is. Um, so I think you, you're dead on the money. I, to me, at least, I think one of the most important reasons they keep banging their head against the wall in cities is so that they have something tangible they can point to as a victory. Yeah, thank you. I, I definitely agree. I think I think what has what is often missed in this, and just to add to this, and just to reiterate, is is that I think also from a military perspective, from the Russian side, if we're looking at it from the Russian lens, is that actually these battles in the cities actually help them are are probably the the best course of action that they have militarily because when they have tried things with maneuver and they tried them again in the winter offensive mechanized maneuver and, and open terrain they absolutely have been um have gotten gotten it handed to them uh, but thank you very much for the comment yeah any other questions or comments before i hand it back to jonathan I'm going to give a quick shout out to the audience, Charles, because um, I can see a lot of distinguished uh, people in the audience tonight or um, today, uh, what, whatever time of day this view. So um, anyone who would like to ask Charles a question on the uh, Russian urban warfare tactics and what Ukraine might expect to encounter in any potential forthcoming offensive, please do feel free to request the mic. You're most welcome. Ben, please go ahead. Oh, thank you. Hi, Charles. I am only partially convinced by your explanation of why the Ukrainians are accepting uh, the fight in the city. You're, if, if I'm not mistaken, you're more or less implying that they shouldn't do it. And if they're doing it, it's because they're saying um, they, they've got some unreformed uh, officers in the wrong place. If if you were if you were forced to find an argument in favor of fighting in the cities for the Ukrainians, which one would it be? Besides the political thing, I'm talking on, on a truly military level. Sure, um, we we talked about this. Uh, John Ridge and I talked about this. I want to say about six weeks ago, specifically around Bakhmut, the Ukrainian decision making. So today, I'm really focused on the on the Russian approach to urban warfare. So the, the decision on the other side, 
on, on the Ukrainians of, of why did they why did they stay? Why did they continue to to try to hold these areas? And if we look, for example, in in Avdivka, for example, Avdivka is a, is a is a small town that's much much smaller than than Bakhmut, for example. But the Ukrainians have done a very good job of not allowing the Russians to get that first foothold. The Russians haven't reached the first block of houses in Avdivka. It's similar around uh, the very 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 small settlement of Bulada. I don't even think that that could be that way. In Marinka, for example it's different. The city is designed a little bit differently. It's a long, linear thing. And they basically just kind of caterpillaring their way from east to west. Why the Ukrainians stay? I, I would say they have, made it, they have made it clear over the last several months that, that they believe that militarily this is the best course of action for them, and that also politically it is the best course of action for them. So I'm not saying that they're wrong. I don't have all the information that they've, that they've chosen, but they did come out several times and just recently, there have been uh, high-level visits to Bakhmut. This uh, is a, is an important uh, thing for them. I will highlight one thing that you know the urban urban warfare is a huge challenge on the soldiers. The psychological aspects of it are much greater than in other terrain environments. I think even within the Russian military, they said that after the Battle of Grozny in 1995, where they did something like this. 72% of the Russian soldiers um, had mental health issues afterwards. So for them, the, on the Russian, in the Russian doctrine, it says is that, that uh, unit rotation and large amounts of reserves are needed when using these kinds of storming tactics. I think we've seen that and heard that on both sides in, in around the uh, you know, city of Bakhmut and Adika and others, that units need to be rotated out and reserves need to be used uh, to make sure that, uh, because the guys just can't, there's a limit to what uh, a human can take. Um, but yeah, so the, on the Ukrainian decision-making side, um, they've made it clear, but I, I'm not going to go too far into that one. Language? All right, yes. I actually had a question regarding the Russian approach to urban combat on the defense. Thus far, we haven't really seen them commit to an attempted urban defense uh, outside of potentially the area around Liman. Can you see that changing should the battles persist into areas that have now either been more recently held by Russia or held by Russia since 2014, such as either Severodonetsk or the city of Donetsk itself? Um, and is there anything in their past actions that could possibly inform their future ones? Thanks, Language. And also, I'd like to say, hey, um, it's great to see uh, the, 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 the messages from you from Ukraine. I, I hope that all is going well. And um, thank you very much for for supporting the people there. Yeah, best of luck. Uh, it's great to hear your voice. It's a pleasure to see you guys are uh, doing good work. Thanks. So Russian approach to urban warfare on the defense is very, very similar to Western doctrine in that it, it uh, uses, uses buildings to have interlocking fields of fire to cover main avenues of approach with supplementary and alternate fighting positions in some level of depth is very, very similar. Uh, the the main thing that is mentioned much more that you would not find in say a U.S. field manual would be the booby traps. That is uh, that's prominent. Uh, well, it's mentioned several times in their uh, urban tactics at the at the lower unit level. There is less in terms of movement, it, like dismounted movement in in urban terrain. Is it is very interesting because their doctrine is very. It's it's kind of what you would expect from a Russian military is very heavily based on mechanized forces. 
So like, how do you use BMPs and T-72s in an urban environment? And and it's also fires heavy, like on the storming side and also in the opposite direction. But at the, at the lowest level, at the platoon squad, company defense level, it's very much similar to what we've seen in, in, the, uh, in the U.S. manuals. I think that they will have difficulty trying. They were going to have to find out, find something new because this mechanized aspect to both their offense and defensive operations in urban terrain has simply not worked at all. We saw it early on with the in-laws and the javelins. It's going to be in the opposite direction when they're on the defense. They have not been able to use survivability in armored vehicles and urban terrain for the Russians has been horrible. That will be the same for them. They're going to have to come up with something new because all of their stuff was written before drones and written when the RPG-7 was the was the most effective thing on the battlefield. Uh, but essentially, to answer your question, sorry, their defensive the defensive tactics are very very similar to Western ones: company defense, in depth, interlocking fields of fires from buildings with good observation, covering avenues of approach. And then supplementary and alternate positions to fall back and to counterattack. They do have they do have a mobile defense theory in 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 urban terrain, but it's uh, it it's basically a paragraph. It doesn't actually say how to do it. It just says that it exists. So there's a follow up, if I may. Are there any lessons that you believe the Ukrainian military has learned, or we as Western observers have learned, in ways to exploit the Russian heavy-handed? Uh, focus on this one aspect of urban defense in any urban assault operations well i mean if we look if we look back at the two counter offenses that, that that took place the ukrainians did an outstanding job of avoiding urban combat at all um you know there was no fight in in harrison city itself that may be a, a situation dependent thing of course is on the river supply lines had been interdicted and so on and the Ukrainians did a very good job in, in, in Kharkiv in terms of bypassing. You know, they basically, uh, you know, where was that airpine where they just uh, set up blocking or Izium, they just set up blocking positions outside of, uh, outside of the city and um, just annihilated the Russians as they fled. They avoided going into cities. That also, though, because of their bypassing, that was one of the reasons why you know, they, they reached a point of friction. They just couldn't go any further in, in the north there. So we shall see. But if the Ukrainians stay true to form, they will try to find ways to not get into this uh, slugfest in the cities where a lot of their advantages in technology, command and control planning are sort of nullified. Um, thank you very much for the question. But I see that we're out of time because we do have one more segment. And so I need to hand back to Jonathan. I apologize if we ran over a bit. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, language, language learner, for all you're doing in your, in Ukraine. Um, it's a pleasure having you here today, sir. We're going to move on to uh, uh, Ben, who's going to give us some uh, some interesting economic developments. Ben, what can you bring us? So, good evening, uh, everyone. Again, uh, hello, language. Um, so I, I'm feeling terrible to interrupt that uh, very interesting back and forth. Uh, I I'll, I'll, will do my utmost to make it worth your while. Uh, so today I want to talk to, talk to you about, uh, and I want to begin with talking about that great American philosopher of the late 20, 20th century called uh, Mike Tyson. Uh, in his most famous quote, as you know, uh, he said that you have a plan until you get punched in the face. 
And so today I would like to speak about plans. And first of all, as so often before, I'd like to speak about what the one which is almost a plan of plans these days. It's the sanction against the, uh, the, the, the old sector in Russia. You all know it. It was passed by the G7. It's extremely cunning. It bypasses most of the issues uh, that it might that such uh, a decision may pose to the world economy by just saying, "Oh no, we allow Russian exports, but we put a price cap." Um, this uh, sanction system rests on one thing, which is the possibility to deny to the Russians, first of all. Uh, the access to Russian financial, to sorry, to European and American financial services, then to European and American um, uh, shipping services, and finally, uh, they're preventing the Russians from accessing uh, financial services. They're preventing the Russians from accessing shipping services, and they're denying to the Russians some of the uh, most rewarding financially. Uh, aspects of the old business, namely refining. So uh, this is the plan, and the idea is to starve the Russian economy and the Russian government uh, pretty fast. But of course, the Russians idiots completely. They decided to retaliate, and uh, first thing they did was to create uh, an alternative shipping service system. Then they decided to. Um, get an alternative um, uh, financial service system. And finally, uh, they have also strategically uh, bought a number of refineries across the world over the years, not recently, that will allow them to access extra money that you would get by um, uh, doing the refinement. But there's just one issue that the Russian have to solve to put this plan into action. They need to find markets. There are the Turks, but the Turks are too small to really be a solution. Uh, they have the Chinese, but the Chinese uh, are not very, don't seem to be very comfortable with buying a lot more than one million uh, barrels per day of Russian crude, and the Russians want to export four. So how do they do it? Well, they turn to one of their oldest friends. But also one of the one of their worst clients, namely India. Uh, they turned to India and they said, "Guys, we can export to you one million uh, barrels a day, going on two million barrels a day. This is massive. This is a very significant portion of, of course, the Indian trade uh, in oil, but more generally in the whole world's trade in oil. This is a very very significant change in." Uh, old trading pattern uh, in the world. Um, so that's the plan. And for a while, it seemed that it was working very well. Uh, back in um, March, we had a Finnish think tank writing that, uh oh, we have a problem. The, the Indians are helping the Russians to launder a lot of their oil because what happens is that the Russians send oil to, to India. The Indians, in turn, refine it. But what I'm saying, the Indians, what I in part mean are Russian-owned companies. They refine it, and then they ship it to uh, to Europe. So one way or another, 
European uh, um, euros and dollars end up on Russian bank accounts. And that is, of course, a big, big problem because that's what we're desperately trying to avoid. So, as I said, good plan, punched in the face, Mai Tyson is right. Of course, it's not that simple. And it could not be that simple. You don't change the world uh, trade patterns that easily, that fast, and with so little problem. And over the past 10 days, more or less, the price that Russia has had to pay to have access to the Indian market has appeared. That price is that the Russians have had to accept to be paid in Indian rupees. And they find themselves in India with uh, bank accounts belonging to the Russian oil exporters with billions upon billions of dollars worth of rupees that they can neither exchange into rubles or dollars, nor can they really repatriate to Russia because several of the Indian banking institutions have declared that they did not feel comfortable uh, handling those operations as it could expose them to uh, Western sanctions. So what you have now are Russians sitting on a pile of fast devaluating Indian rupees in India, being completely unable to do anything about it. Or rather, uh, they've been trying to find alternatives, they've been trying to find ways, and so far, nothing seems to work. They've been trying, for instance, to find a barter trade that they could, they could do and they could use to replace the currency. Uh, but the problem is that, at the moment, India is exporting $8 billion worth of uh, trade to Russia, while Russia is exporting north of 40 billions. So you've got eight against 40. That would imply that India find a way somehow to quintuple its exports to Russia, which is slightly complicated because the Russians don't eat that much rice, and there's only so much tea that the Russians can drink, and there's very, very few other things that the Indians, A, can and B, are willing to export to Russia. The uh, avenue, I think, that has been uh, discussed uh, the most is probably for India to produce weapons and then to send them to Russia. But uh, clearly, the Indian government and the Indian businesses have declared that they were not comfortable with that solution, and uh, so that solution had been taken out of the table. There are other options that are being uh, explored, but for the moment, it really seems that the Russians have, in effect, shipped billions of dollars worth of of Russian oil to India, and have managed not to be get paid for it. So, what I'm saying, not paid for it, um, it is worth digging just a little bit in the numbers to be sure what what we're talking about. The most bombastic way of understanding it would be to think that the roughly $40 billion worth of trade that has been done with Russia over the past 12 months have led to a full payment in rupees. And so that the Russian exporters are sitting on more or less 
40 billion rupees. This is probably too optimistic. Even Bloomberg seems to to be uh, thinking that this is the case. I don't think it's the case. They've been probably at least part of the part of the business that has been done in dollars, part of the business that has been done in alternative currencies uh, that are pegged on the dollars, so almost as good as the dollar, but which are crucially not the dollar, and as such can be more, much more easily used. But the lower bar actually has been. Uh, presented by none other than Sergey Lavrov. He said recently in an interview that there were billions of dollars worth of Russian assets that were sitting in Indian banks, impossible to export because they're uh, in rupees. So if you said billions, that means that we're looking at the very least two billions. Of course, there's no point really trying to get into the details of what Lavrov says, but the, the number used is still interesting. We are not talking about millions, we're not talking about hundreds of millions, we're talking about billions. One possibility that the Russians have been exploring with other countries would be to exchange assets. So basically, take the Indian assets in Russia, you liquidate them, and uh, you use the money uh, to pay for Indian exports. And then you settle this in rupees in India between Indians, problem solved. The only problem is that apparently recent uh, forays have been um, have been done, and only four hundred million dollars worth of Indian assets exist in Russia. So that could be, in the best case scenario, let's put it this way, it would cover only one percent of what the Russians are trying to repatriate from India. So that option, that violent option that the Russians tend to favor, is also. Not not on the table anymore. So they're they're really really scratching their head and trying to find alternatives, which they're not managing. And now it's worth looking forward to what is going to happen. Can can the the Indians suddenly start paying in rubles? Probably not. Finding rubles on the international markets these days is very difficult and very. Well, it's expensive and it's risky. So they probably are not going to try to do it and certainly not try to do it for large amounts of money. The second thing is that maybe they're going to try to increase their exports of diesel and uh, old products to Europe and the United States in order to generate more dollars. But uh, this is not a bad idea, financially speaking. Uh, but for from the point of view of the Indians themselves, it's not very interesting. It becomes a sort; they become a simple conduit for uh, Western money to reach Russia and nothing else. So, if it comes to that, well, they, they don't really have an interest there, so they probably will uh, avoid them, prevent themselves from from getting a headache and uh, not do it at all. So that is also probably not the case. And then there's the final option, with the Russians not exporting oil to India anymore. This is both plausible and very, very unlikely. It's plausible because at the end of the day, the Russian exporters need money. But it's also very unlikely because the Russian exports to India are going on to 2 million barrels a day, every day. This is close to 50% of the Russian exports. Where else? Are they going to send it? Maybe, for all it's worth, a few rupees are better than nothing. The Russians recently have proposed to, said they were going to cut their production by 
And as the best we can tell, they did not. Uh, and this stopping to send money, stopping to send oil to India would represent three times this effort. So they're very, very unlikely to do it. Um, and so they find themselves in this in this position. The Russian economist Alexander Isakov recently has digged through the archives and found that back in 1983, exactly the same problem had emerged. India had bought and, and bought and bought Russian oil, paying with rupees until the moment when the Soviet Union said, sorry guys, we don't, we, we cannot send you the rupees. We cannot send you uh, oil anymore because we cannot exchange the rupees. There were um, month upon month of negotiation until basically what happened was that the Russians had to accept to write off their losses and gradually decrease their exports to India in order to move there to, to try to find other clients. The date is very interesting, 83. Within six years, uh, the Russian Empire was uh, in the process of collapsing. With a little bit of luck, uh, same cause, same effect. And as Mike Tyson said, the Russian Empire is going to get punched in the face and finally crumble. Um, so, Jonathan, the mic is yours. Thank you, Ben. That was a very um, entertaining uh, uh, delivery of a very serious subject. Um, whilst Russia uh, subjects Ukraine to, as we've all heard, some of the greatest war crimes, greatest is not, not appropriate, some of the most, the, the gravest war crimes seen in generations, India is uh, is evidently seeking to this to, to act in a, in a way which is distinct to um to Ukraine's allies thank you all for um for tuning into uh, another episode of Tochny uh please do check out Tochny talks which um is uh is a series of interviews which uh have had in their most recent interviewees Michael Weiss uh exit 266 Andre Sifras and uh, Sergei Subleni amongst others uh, so, thank you for joining us on Tochini Weekly. We broadcast, of course, every Sunday at uh, uh, 1800 UTC. Um, we, uh, we're we on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and uh, I'd like to thank our special guests, of course, tonight, Adrian, uh, the documentary filmmaker, and all our panellists. Uh, and thank you to, to all of you who have listened to li live and all of our podcast listeners. Uh, and so, see you all next week. Slava Ukraini. On behalf of the brave. <laughs>